only fair to warn you that the uh, following uh, program may have uh, material that's uh, <laughs> uh, offensive to uh, the more sensitive people among us. And, uh, of course, this is by way of a disclaimer, so we'd like to suggest that you tune on down the dial where you'll find things a little easier to, you know. In fact, they're doing a salute to uh, Julie Andrews, one of the truly clean performers of our time. Right down the dial, I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, uh, would you uh, excuse me for a minute here, please? It's uh, been a typical rotten day. I mean, exciting New York uh, that tends to erode your senses. It doesn't uh, excite your senses. The, you know, it erodes your senses until finally your senses... Uh, you, you know, of course, that we have six senses, right? How many senses do you... Do they say six senses? Is that correct, Jerry? Or is it five? It is five, is that what you say? Well, can you name all six of them or all five of them? You can You can name all five of them. I presume also you can name all seven of the deadly sins. I presume you can also name the seven great wonders of the world. I presume you know all those things, right? Well, the hell with you, then. If you know all that stuff, what are you doing here? God's sakes, listening to radio at this hour. And, uh, I mean, anybody that's as smart as that. It's been, a, you know, a typical day. You take a look at your senses now, and you can see them eroding. It's like, a, you know, it looks like a... Just look look carefully at your senses. For example, your your, your sense of uh, your sense of smell. Now, here in a city like New York, uh, the sense of smell is being assaulted constantly by everything. Uh, and if you know anything about New York, you realize New York has a bigger population of dogs, for example, than it has of walking around people. So ultimately, your sense of smell is assailed uh, un under very hazardous conditions constantly. Of course, we don't have, due to the fact that all of us are, are canyon dwellers in New York, you must realize that we live in canyons. There are people who live in, in hills in other parts of the world, you know, the hilltop dwellers. There's the river folk. Uh, there's the uh, there's the plainsman. You've heard of plainsman, right? There's the desert nomad. Uh, people who live in New York have to be essentially called uh, uh, canyon dwellers. We live in the bottom of a great pit. And so we don't really see much of the sun, like all true canyon people. Uh, in fact, there are certain canyon people in the world that live in the various uh, isolated areas. And New York is certainly an isolated area when one considers uh, the rest of the country at large. We are a little tiny, tiny smidgen. We are a moat in the eye of Buddha, uh, but uh, it's a damned concentrated moat, and so uh, <laughs> very isolated. And so we tend to become mythical about these things. Uh, man, uh, by mythical, I mean the, that a man living in the bottom of a giant canyon where the sun is only seen once every maybe 24 days, the sun, the small corner of it appears... He begins to create uh, a, a legend of sun worship. Now, a guy that lives in the desert doesn't worship the sun. I've never seen one that worshiped the sun. A guy who lives in, the, say, uh, in the middle of uh, the Sahara Desert, they are not sun worshippers. As a matter of fact, they become rain worshippers. Because since they, they don't see rain, they have to... You, you always worship that which is unattainable, right? That which is attainable, you certainly don't worship. And so... Uh, uh, the uh, New Yorker tends to become a sun worshiper, and you'll find that at this time of the year, television is is crowded with commercials that have suns on them, telling the New Yorker that he can go to this various, you know, this place wherever it might be, 
and he can worship the sun. He can run free and unfettered down the beach in Jamaica, wherever it might be. See, live now, pay later. And, uh, <laughs> of course, you spend... <laughs> nothing's worse than to go to a place like that and there's two weeks of rain. Rain and high winds and 40-degree temperatures. Oh, nothing is worse than a guy who's gone 2,000 miles. Uh, you know, it's like climbing to the top of Mount Olympus and all the gods are on vacation. There's nothing there but a lot of stone seats. And uh, they point out that's where Minerva lived. Where's Minerva now? I come for thousands of miles. Minerva has just left and is now visiting Queens, New York. Oh, for God's sakes. Well, then, uh, at that point, so you, you get kind of bugged. So, uh, I, as, as a New Yorker, I must say that the senses are continually assaulted. The sense of smell in New York, uh, it, it becomes eroded like a mountain. What, what, what erodes a mountain? Rain, right? Wind, right? Guys throwing beer cans on it, right? Bulldozers, right? Well, that's what erodes mountains. And uh, what does a mountain look like after it's eroded? A lot of cracks in it, and it's not much of a mountain anymore. It gets really just a little pimple, really, after a while. A really non-eroded mountain is like, say, Everest. Yeah, the mountain ain't eroded. Uh, it's got a lot of crinkles in it, but that ain't from erosion, see. So, nevertheless, uh, we, our, our senses are like that. Let's take the tense, sense of smell. After a while in New York, your sense of smell becomes eroded, an old pitted mountain. What once was uh, was a was a high arching peak reaching for the sun, you could smell a dandelion at four miles away. No way, New York. I'll tell you. <laughs> hey, are you getting tired of smelling musk? You know this whole thing in New York, the whole big thing with musk. They have the every store down in the in the village, for example, has a big sign on the window. Yes, we have musk. The mysterious scent of the Orient. Well, everybody in New York now smells like musk which means vaguely fermenting whale juice. That's a derivative of ambergris. Isn't ambergris? Well, ambergris, that's a familiar name, ambergris. Wasn't that the, the heroine of a, of a big pop novel? Made a movie, I think, with Linda Darnell in it? Yeah, ambergris. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it's been a typical, you know, typical day in New York. Your, your senses are assaulted, fantastic erosion of the senses... And so, would you please uh, uh, give me something here to calm my nerves a little bit? Just, just sneak it in there. That's please. That's it. Pour it over my head there. That's it. Very good. See, they say that the, that music is to soothe the savage breast, or is it beast? Which is it? I don't know. See, that's trouble. My head is getting soft. And that's what happens in New York. Bring that up, please, a little bit. Oh, it's got a scratch on it. Hear that scratch? Well, nothing is unflawed in this world, friends. Nothing. Has it occurred to you that uh, that scratches are the dandruff of the stereo world? <laughs> Hi, George. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Certainly is. Yes. So you get you get. See, that's the trouble with it with the world of technology. You get Beethoven. I mean, here's Beethoven sitting over his his harpsichord or his piano or his flugelhorn or whatever it is that he sat over and he's eating cheese and drinking dark wine and he's sitting there glowering into his soul and he's writing he's writing his guts out say he's trying to pay the rent too and it, you know he had to do that you know just like the rest of us he's working away there seeing the bills are piling up around him and what's worse his hearing aid is out he can't hear what he's writing 
which makes it... Well, maybe he didn't want to hear it. I don't know. You know, it's, it's a difficult... To, you know, there's a, there's a theory that says had Beethoven been able to hear, he would not have written as majestically and as beautifully as he wrote. No, there's a, there's a thought in that. No, no, that's I'm not that, that. There's a... There's a, you know, he was deaf, see? That's right, Beethoven was deaf. No kidding. And so there are many people who feel that had Beethoven not been deaf, he would have just heard all the other jazz around him, you know? He would have heard all the bad musicians and all the good ones, and he would wound up turning out the same old tripe that everybody else did. And so because he was deaf, he couldn't hear anything. So he just sat there and turned out this stuff. He thought it was what everybody else was writing. Turned out he was writing, you know, like the Fifth Symphony and stuff like that which uh, completely was, uh, you know, bugged all the other writers around. They could hear. So here's poor old Beethoven working away, right? I mean, he's writing for the ages. I mean, he ain't writing for Cousin Brucey. No way, friends. He's writing for the ages. Limpid, cool. And here's a pianist who spent 40 years learning to... to carefully delineate and expand and interpret Beethoven. The piano, which goes back into the ancient catalog of instruments. It's a, a derivative of the harp. And the harp, of course, as we all know, goes back over 12,000 years. One of the earliest instruments that man played when he crawled out of the woods was a harp. All these great forces combined. And now it is the 20th century. And they all come together, these magnificent forces of art. Beethoven. Just keep going. No, 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 no. You, it's, it's all Beethoven in the yard wide. Beethoven. Beethoven doesn't stop, friends. He wasn't a one-shot man. No way. What's to that? Muttering, grumbling, bugged. Now. Yeah. Listen to that. Man marching forward with dignity with his head held high. Marching up 6th Avenue, passing 34th Street with the great vast crowds pouring into Macy's. Yes. The images that Beethoven evokes. Man slowly roaring upstream on the Raritan River in Jersey. Valentine and Budweiser and Rheingold cans floating past him. He's in an inflatable raft, but rowing like hell. There he goes. Dun, 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 dun. He wants to get home in time to watch Johnny Carson. That is man marching forward to vast, attainable, and unattainable, and, and rapidly disappearing goals. No wonder man has filled his world with myths to sustain him in the dark hours of his days. Oh, what kind of myths? Well, I'll tell you, one of the most persistent myths that I am aware of. How many times have you heard about the guy that bought the new car and there was a rattle in the back? And finally, after two years of being mad at the rattle, they finally took the car apart and found that one of the workers in the factory had tied a Coke bottle inside the panels of the car. Have you heard that myth? That myth has persisted like the myth of the New Jersey devil. There are thousands of people who will swear to you they once met a guy in Al's Tavern who told them that he had a cousin that that actually happened to. I've never met a guy to whom it actually happened, but that is one of the great myths. The myths of the Coke bottle 
in the door panels of the, well, there's a dotted line there. You can fill in Pontiac, Chevrolet, Cadillac. And often it's embellished. But there was a note in the bottle that says, how do you like that, you rich fink? That's in the Cadillacs. They put that one, right? Yes, no other man fills his days under the scorching sun of time. He fills his days with myths to sustain him as he struggles over the great vast desert of existence. Please bring that up. I like to hear that dandruff. It's getting worse there. The dandruff of the stereo world. See, that's what I mean. Beethoven works like a madman. He spends his entire life, pours his guts out on parchment. And it ain't easy to write on parchment. If you ever try to write on parchment, that's hard in itself. And yeah, you know, parchment is goat skin that's been dried. Did you know that? Listen, the damn thing is now skipping. See what I'm saying? Technology in the 20th century has finally... Oh, that's all right. Take it off. That's okay. It's okay. That's, that's very symbolic. That's what I was about to say. Beethoven pours his guts into his work. And the pianist... Name him. Van Cliburn, great pianists of the ages, struggled to learn and to master their instrument. It all comes together in a recording studio, and two hours later, it winds up on a piece of wax, and it's scratchy. What, uh, what, uh, what boots this cruise that I carry? That's a pretty good quote in case uh, anybody, uh, you know, gets smart with you down at the chop full of nuts someday. You just holler this, have what boots this cruise that I carry? <laughs> they won't know that you're quoting. Sophocles. By God, Sophocles, no less. Anybody in your neighborhood can quote Freud. You quote Sophocles. Try that one. What boots this cruise that I carry? And uh, by the way, the boot they're referring to is not the kind you buy at J.C. Penney's. You know, the new Western saddle skin boot. It's a different kind of boot. And what is a cruise? You don't know. It ain't the thing that you go to South America on. What boots this cruise that I carry? And you become known as Fred the Deepy in your neighborhood. This is WOR in New York. And uh, speaking of uh, deep thoughts, we'd like to lay one on you here. We have the House of Chan. And uh, House of Chan. And they have all this good Chinese food down there. In fact, uh, it has been often said in the House of Chan neighborhood that their dining there is inscrutably delicious. Inscrutably delicious. Don't scrutinize it too closely. Uh, <laughs> in other words, don't. Beauty does not bear close examination. And uh, the beautiful food at the House of Chan should be enjoyed and inhaled for what it is. One of the great ideas of Eastern man, the House of Chan. And they're at 52nd Street and 7th Avenue, and they have a little uh, they have a little cocktail hour there from 4:30 to 6:30. A nice bar. They have Chinese hors d'oeuvres, and you know, like uh, sweet and sour truffles and stuff like that. It's kind of good. And uh, you come in there, and you'll find that the food is great. And uh, by the way, they're a legend around around Broadway, House of Chan, 7th and 52nd Street, and they're open seven days a week. Now, let's see, speaking of open seven days a week, and I hardly put them in the same league, but uh, we uh, have we are enjoined here to uh, mention the Gramercy Park close of 64 West 23rd Street in New York. And they're open seven days a week and save dough on suits. If that's your job, if that's your, if that's your push in life, there's where you can do it. 
uh, factory building. It said, do guys still wear suits? That's a good question. I mean, I thought suits were kind of going out. You know, with the short haircut and uh, Life Boy soap and all that. You know, I'm just curious. Uh, 64 West 23rd Street, though, if you're looking for groovy suits, this is what it says right here. These are not uh, my words, they're theirs. Beautiful clothes that actually fit you in uh, direct contrast to that sack you're wearing there. Saturday to 6 p.m. They're open to 7 p.m. every other day. Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Gramercy Park Clothes, 64 West 23rd Street, third floor. Yes, sir. Hey, you know, speaking of great ideas of Western man, this Saturday, listen carefully, it's important announcement time. Uh, this Saturday, it is. It's important. You have me. Uh, you have that little razzmatazz music in there. All right, important announcement time, please. Hit it there, please. Come on. One, two, three, four. One, two. That's it. Hey, hold it. That's good. That's good. That's good. Put them guys in the closet again. Reset them. That's it. Tell that guy to get that string tightened on that second string to the left on that cigar box fiddle there. It's rattling. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, important announcement time. This Saturday at exactly 12 noon, I will appear, for mysterious reasons, I will appear in uh, Wanamaker's in Philadelphia. That's right, Philadelphia. By God, the demand for Shepard to come to Philadelphia is now overwhelming. And uh, we cannot we cannot ignore the uh, uh, the consensus of the people, right? And uh, so, <laughs> in happy Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the home of the majestic and truly talented Boobird, Shepard Boobird, yes. Philadelphia's natural export to the rest of the world has been the Boobird. Anytime you go to a ball game anywhere, I mean, or football game, any kind of a ball game, basketball, uh, hockey, shot put, any place where there is any kind of competition, you go to Oakland, California, you go to uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, and you're in an auditorium, and you're watching guys play ping pong or whatever it might be, and you hear one guy with a fantastic voice, with tremendous lungs, with enormous, uh, with enormous persistence, and with a rancid mind uh, who was uh, incalculably cruel to the performers below, you'll know that he got his early training in Philadelphia. He is a transplant of Philadelphia. You can recognize the Philadelphian by his ability to boo. They learn it from birth. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. There must have been a lot of booing that went on when uh, the guys were sitting around in, in, in Independence Hall. You know, they were trying to figure out, you know, Constitution. Was that the place where they, they wrote the, the Constitution? You imagine Thomas Jefferson coming in, see, and he says, uh, uh, fellas, uh, we got the first draft here. And three guys from Philadelphia, boo, boo, boo. They say, excuse me. You haven't even heard it yet. That does not stop a Philadelphian. I mean, uh, it has been known that in Philadelphia, they start booing before the kickoff, many a football game. <laughs> I mean, of course, with what's been happening there recently, <laughs> no wonder uh, they have a reason. But uh, we will be in Philadelphia to sign copies of our new book, The Ferrari in the Bedroom, which is now available all around the country. We will be in Philadelphia to write suitable obscenities in your particular copy the stuff that the law would not let me put in and send it through to mails. I'll write it right in the front of your book. That's Wanamaker's in Philadelphia, 12 noon, Saturday. Oh, I know what you're waiting for. I could see everybody out there was uh, anxiously waiting and nervous there. I could tell. I can tell what you're waiting for. Sure. All right, here it comes, gang, of course. 
And he says, what the devil is General Tire trying to do? <laughs> I don't know. It's called the double shotgun technique. Here's a safe driving tip from General Tire. Grasp your steering wheel firmly when you drive. That's the safety tip from General Tire. That's right down there. It's nitty-gritty. Also, they'd like to point out that uh, another great tip is to get some General Jets white walls. They look so great. You know, guys can come along with paint cans and write their name all over the side of your white walls, and it kind of gives a little folksy quality to your car. The General Jet has four-ply nylon cord construction. It's General Tire. You look for your General Tire headquarters. It's listed in the yellow pages. Sing it out, man. Don't be Good, good. I like that safety tip. Grasp your steering wheel firmly. And that's... <laughs> you'd be surprised the number of people who don't do that. <laughs> oh yeah, you'll see guy whipping along, uh, whipping along on a turnpike, you know, and he's driving this great big twelve thousand pound car, going eighty seven miles an hour, and his arm is draped back, you know, over the over the side of. The, you ever seen this with his arm draped back over the seat of the car, with his elbow crooked out of the window, and he's got three little, uh, you know, maybe his fingernail or the fr middle finger and his thumb, it's grasping the wheel. He goes by. It's, oh my God, it's Kamikaze Day on the turnpike. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, I I meant to, uh, I meant to, uh, you know, I I meant to come in here with a more serious uh, uh, view of life. Uh, but of course, since my senses have been so eroded due to living in New York, I am totally insensitive now at this point. You notice? Well, no, it's true. Do you notice that Archie Bunker comes from New York? Well, of course. And uh, you know, this is a, uh, he, you couldn't imagine Archie Bunker say coming from Ames, Iowa. No way! It's it's what the it's the assault of the uh, of the external forces. The uh, it's the nature of living in the canyon that we live in here that causes us to be basically insensitive. And uh, we kind of like it that way. The turtle likes being a turtle. Believe me, uh, the porcupine does not mind throwing a few quills now and again. You know that's what it's about. And uh, it, it grows a tough man, hard. And I'm hard, tough. Yes, sir. Anytime Gore Vidal wants to come around here and fist fight, I'll fist fight him. My God. Yeah. I'm a member of the club. But I've given it up. See, I've given up all clubs. I mean, no. You, you, the trouble is, if you join a club, your name is on a list, right? And that and that means that you're vulnerable. Now, that's right. You, that's how. Have you ever wondered why you get on such crazy mating lists? That's because you join some cockamamie club here. And the club is actually a, 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 a you know, a... Uh, flim-flam to get names, <laughs> which they then sell. And uh, you wind up, you know, getting letters from uh, from places, mysterious places in Sweden that say to you, Dear Connoisseur, and uh, you open this thing up, you know, five naked ladies fall out. So you, uh, this is a sample of our wares. And <laughs> you wonder, how the hell did I get on? Well, now I'll tell you. Uh, did you read? Uh, this, is, this is liable to be bigger than the Watergate caper. You know the Watergate caper? Listen to this one. Did you hear about it? Three men, at least two of them armed, ransacked the files of a nudist camp in Mount Olive Township over in Jersey. <laughs> the other night, gagging and blindfolding the owner and her handyman, police said. The intruders, two of them, had posed as FBI men. Oh, left the Goodland nudist colony in the Morris County Township without harming the woman and the employee. 
Uh, they didn't know what they did, except that they rushed in, opened up all the files, and uh, they proceeded to ransack the files, which contained the names and accounts of the camp's patrons. <laughs> yes, sir. And they knew what they were after. See, the, the camp was closed for the winter. You know, it's not easy being a nudist in, uh, in Jersey in the winter. That's, uh, that is dedication. That borders upon uh, Buddhist contemplation at that point. <laughs> and, uh, it says the police are mystified. It says they, they are interested. They, they can't figure out what the interest is in the nudist camp files. Well, have they investigated the possibility that this may be a bunch of guys out looking for another mailing list? Yes, sir. Uh, people who go to nudist colonies are peculiarly interested in that sort of thing. They, they're always walking around with cameras. Did you know that? <laughs> they like to pretend, oh, no, we're here for the sun. And they don't take many pictures of the sun. They take a lot of pictures of each other. And to, quote, file them and make good friends. However, uh, uh, the other day, you know, speaking of nudists, the other day, I'm, I'm sitting in a cab, you know. You, that, that's the one great thing about being in the swirl. Hey, Earl, don't run away. I'm just saying, you know, the reason that the, that you and I are what we are, Earl, is that we were spawned by the great, by the by the great spawning oven of New York. Oh yes, it's created a different kind of guy. You know, no, a comic coming out of Ames, Iowa, and uh, you know, growing growing to his profession in Ames, Iowa, turns out to be Junior Samples, right? <laughs> oh, that's different. But the kind of guys, why you and I, we we we. We've sat and 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 looked Leonard Silman right in the eye, right? And uh, oh yes, we have been told by Max Gordon we got no talent. And uh, after a while, we've come up through a, a, a we've come up through a hard, tough, uh, a, a tremendous uh, oven. And everywhere you go, yes, yes, yes. The thing about New York is the competition. And everywhere you go in New York, everybody's got a thing. Everybody's everybody's in showbiz in New York. Everybody. And so the other day, I'm sitting in a cab, and the showbiz is a certain kind of cab that, that goes through Times Square, see? There's something about Times Square that turns cabbies on. Now, they either say, oh, why? Why are the guys out there? Why are they, you know what they ought to do? They just come out and take a net and just throw the net over the whole bunch of them, you know? Look at these point joints. Oh, look at that one. Wow. Well, that's one type of cab driver, right? There's another type of cab driver. The minute you find yourself going in the neighborhood of Times Square, he looks in the rearview mirror, see, and he, he's sizing you up to see whether you're a mark or not. Because every mark that comes to New York heads to Times Square, right? Now, if you're a certain kind of mark, he will say to you, Hey, buddy, uh, you're looking for a good time, huh? Well, uh, that uh, I never get that because I have the look in the eye of a man who has been in the Times Square area too long. All <laughs> right? So... I get another one the other day, totally different one, totally new kind. I'm riding through Times Square, and of course, Times Square, fantastic signs all over, and a tremendous 18-story sign, you know, it says, uh, no, you know, a tremendous big movie, uh, uh, Erotica, boom, you know, an X-rated film uh, for adults only, and underneath it's a searching, a scarifying experience, Clive Barnes, and so we're riding under this uh, barrage of signs all over, all over the, you see, a porny joints, massage parlors, and a whole bit. See, and this guy's right now. He's got this. He's a huge guy. First of all, he's he's got he's got a gray sort of a uh, crew cut, but it didn't really look like a crew cut. It looked a little bit like a a modified porcupine, you know that kind. And uh, yeah, he's got a, he's got a thick 
redneck, say, so we're riding along, and he's, see, he's looking me over in the mirror. See, and I'm sitting in the back. I figure, what kind is this guy going to be? Is he going to lay the, uh, you have to good time, Mac? <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I got a couple of friends right here on the corner. Uh, I figured it was going to be that one. But uh, he just looked, uh, you know, he looked again, didn't say much. And we turned down around 46th Street and turned right into Broadway. See, here we are. And right next to us is a tremendous marquee. And it says three. Three. It says, count them, three. Adult male features. It says, tremendous new, uh, you know, adult male movie festival. And the uh, big exclamation points. And out to, outside, you know, you see these gigantic... They had the... It was the first place I've seen uh, that used as a as an illustration for what they were, you know, selling in there. They, they, were, they were into technology, Earl. This is kind of great. Instead of just having a sign, you know, that says uh, bazooms, uh, you know, something like that, they had actual plastic ones that were blown up in life color. Tremendous, see? And it says, inside, 3D. It says, this is not all, men. Where do you get inside? Well, I'm looking at this, these two tremendous, uh, well, let us put it this way, uh, uh, mammary accoutrements. And uh, they were, you know, about eight feet across, blown up. Trying to see. <laughs> Somebody has since stolen them. And, uh, yes, uh, that must have been a great moment. You know, this guy's trying to load in the back of his uh, station wagon these two gigantic uh, plastic uh, bazooms. You know, so, nevertheless, we're, we're looking. We stopped for a light there. We're looking at these two things, see. And the guy turns to me and says, What do you think of that? I said, Well, you know, that's interesting. See, I'm playing it very cool. Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. And you can see the usual collection of creeps that are standing there. There's a whole crew of creeps that move up and down Broadway and, and Times Square. seem to have no known income or they have no demand on their time. Do you agree with that? That's, the, that's what's fascinating. They just sort of wander around and gawk at this stuff, see? And they all look the same. Have you ever looked at the crowd that's standing in front of these porny magazine shops? And the guy, they all tend to wear plaid caps. I've noticed that. I don't know what this is with a plaid cap. Yeah, you know, the cloth cap, you know, they all, and they look very furtive. So we're looking at this crowd of furtive types. When suddenly the cab driver says to me, and I quote, he says, look at that, what do you think of that? He says, boy, he says, guys that need that kind of stuff, that, that really, that really disgusts me. He looks at me in the mirror again to see what my reaction to that was. He says, well, you know, I say every man to his thing. You know, what the hell, if they get the kicks out of that, it ain't hurting nobody. He says, well, I'll tell you. Have you ever thought of being a nudist? Well, you don't often get asked a question like this by a cab driver, you know, right there in the middle of Times Square. I said, well, no, I hadn't thought about it, actually, you know. <laughs> I take showers once in a while, you know, and all that, but uh, I never thought much about it. He said, well, I want to tell you something. I'm a nudist. I am a nudist. He said, yep, I'm a nudist, and, and I'll tell you this, been a nudist since 1943. I said, you yeah, have, since 1943, oh, let's see, that was the time of World War II, wasn't it? That's a long time. You're a real veteran nudist. Yep, one of the pioneers in the movement. Yep, I've been going to the same camp out in Jersey. We're down on the Jersey Shore, and uh, every summer, we go down there, I go down there in June, I, uh, we close up around the Labor Day. Spend all my weekends, time off down there in the nudist camp. And uh, you, you'd be surprised the wonderful friends you make down there. I'll tell you this. There's a, a nice bunch of girls come up from Philadelphia. And uh, we just, uh, you know, we play volleyball. And, uh, yeah, we play shuffleboard. 
and we have a lot of fun in a nudist camp. And I'll tell you what it does. It gets rid of all your hang-ups. You stand around there in the sun. And uh, I've been a nudist since 1943. Hey, I want to show you something here now. Uh, you, 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 you don't mind if we talk to you. I mean, you, you, you ain't one of these guys that don't mind talking to Cam, right? I said, no, go right ahead. I, you know, I've got nothing to do. I'm sitting there in the, you know, we've been in the, you know, usual traffic jam 15, 20 hours already, you know. And uh, so I'm just sitting there enjoying this. And then he says, hey, he says, uh, you want to look at something? I'll tell you. I just want to show you something here. So he reaches down, and you know, all cab drivers usually have a, a cigar box on the seat next to him where they got little pieces of paper and pencil stubs and, you know, butt ends of hamburgers and stuff like that, see? So he reaches he reaches into this box. He says, uh, take a look at that, boy. If you want to see, you know, if you don't know nothing about nudists, you really should look at this, you know. You, you, may, you may really enjoy it. And he reaches back and he hands me this magazine, see? And it's dog-eared. Obviously, he's been out proselytizing for some time, and it's dog-eared, see? And it's a it's a nudist magazine. You know what the nudist? You've seen these nudist magazines. You know they always have these these uh, yeah they always have two girls. You know hitting a volleyball. You know and 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 the sun. It's kind of like a it's such a real healthy thing. <laughs> no way. <see? laughs> so here they are hitting the thing, the volleyball. And I look at it. Says, he says, "Have you ever seen one of the magazines?" I said, "Yes, I have seen those magazines indeed." He said, oh, "Well, I'll tell you this. You're in for a surprise." And I said, what surprise am I in for, sir? He says, take a look at page 42. It's page 42. So I go through this thing, you know, past all these bazooms and stuff like that, seeing the sun and the volleyball, a little more, you know, fun around the pool, and the great articles like uh, the intrinsic evil of jockey shorts. You know, <laughs> articles like that. Man was born... If man... You know, the usual kind of logic in these things. If man was born to wear clothes, he'd have been born with a pair of BVDs on. God did not mean... You know, of course, uh, so I'm going through, and I come to page 42, and I open up. I can't believe my eyes. There is Herman. By the way, his name is Herman. I have gotten from the, you know, the license in the front there. There's Herman. There is Herman on a swing. And two chicks are pushing the swing. And they all have this pleasant look of nymphs under the wood, see? <laughs> you know? And these two chicks are pushing Herman. And there's Herman, who looks like a watermelon with feet. You know, a hairy watermelon with feet. And uh, here's feet sticking out of the swing there. And I says, why, that's you, Herman. And he says, well, I don't like to talk about it, he said, you know, because... Well, you know, a lot of guys wouldn't understand, but you got to realize in the nudist world, I'm a star. I says, you're a star, Herman. Yeah, take a look at this. He reaches down, and he gives me another magazine. It's another title entirely. He says, take a look at page 64. There is Herman. This time, Herman is lying on his back, and there's a big beach ball next to him, and they're next to apparently a pool. And there are two nymphs who are are sprinkling suntan oil on his back, you know, and uh, looking very pleasant and happy. And in the background, you see a little softball game going on between the married ones and the single ones, see? He says, yep. Underneath it, it says, this sporting in the sun. The sun gets a little hot. One of our nudists is shown getting a little suntan oil by a pair of fellow sun worshippers. I said, well, that's very good, Herman. And I hand it back to him. He says, oh, wow. Well, he says, you ain't seen nothing. He says, uh... Uh, 
you really want to see me at, at, in action? I said, well, <laughs> by this time, you know, I'm getting sucked in. I says, well, Herman, I hadn't thought about it. He said, well, you know, you, you, you know that, uh, that one of the big things in the nudist world is we have films. You know, we have a lot of films at our, uh, our meetings, and uh, the nudist club is meeting over on West 23rd Street this coming Thursday, and I'm in one of the films there in a the volleyball game. I said, oh, my God. It had never occurred to me that there are stars in the nudist world. And they appear in all the nudist magazines. They, they, you know, they run through them. And apparently, my, I, here I was with a famous man, and I did not know it. I was with a famous man. I was with Herman. Rotund Falstaffian Herman. Herman was the Falstaff. Apparently, he was the, he was, <laughs> he was the comedy relief of the nudist world. And if you get, you know, if you look at all these nudist magazines, you see there are three types. There's the fantastic chick, you know, and she's always looking very innocent, like she doesn't even know she's naked. She's just there to play with the beach ball. Uh, There's that type. Then there is the Adonis, who's usually standing casually in a family group. Two little naked kids, see? Uh, There's no sex involved in this, see? It's, uh, you know, Mrs. and Mr. Nudist are shown with their children gathered at the nudist park, right? The third type, and this is the subtle one, is the comic relief who runs through all these. And usually he is a... He <laughs> well, he's Herman. And here was Herman. I says, Herman, I said, you're, you're, you're really a star. He says, yeah. He said, been in it since 1943. Got my first progress picture in 1946. My biggest season, you know, was just last year. Big season. I said, do you have an agent, Herman? No, I said, we don't have no agents. They, they know, Herman. So the minute I... He said, you know what? Every couple of days. You wouldn't believe it. I got a couple of days of nudists. Gets in a cab. Now, he may be a nudist out in California. He may be a nudist out in Idaho or Indiana someplace. And he takes a look. He takes a look at my picture right there. You see the picture in the cabbie, the hack license? I said, yeah. He says, takes a look at that. And he says, right away. He says, my God, you're Herman. Fun-loving Herman. Right, he often asked me for my autograph. Once in a while, I say, take off your short. I want to see if it's the real Herman. Well, so I says, you know, my God, Herman, it's a pleasure to travel with you. And I get out of the cab here at 1440 Broadway, see, and he says, hey, he says, don't forget now. He says, come on down 23rd Street, West 23rd, Thursday night at 8 o'clock. It's uh, 223 West 23rd, third floor. When you walk in, say, you know, Herman. You know, and I've, I've often taught since that time, I ought to get down there, see, because, for one thing, let's face it, obviously, Herman is a star. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like, it's like walking into, uh, it's like walking into Grossinger's and say that you know Dean Martin. You know, that, that really impresses people. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm telling you, that gets right down in the, you know, and, and I would just like to walk in once, you know, to one of these meetings and say, hey, I'm a friend of Herman, fun-loving Herman, you know, what a beach ball? Herman with the swing, you all know that picture. And to see just how I would be treated. Get that deference due to the friend of a star. By the way, in New York, that's an important thing. To be the friend of a star. Or the guy that... Oh, yes, there's a guy There's a guy in the barbershop. Right down the street, in 10th Street. A guy in a barbershop there. And occasionally I go into the barbershop. Nobody goes to the barbershop any longer to get a haircut, right? I mean, barbershops, nobody. You know, get a haircut... So once in a while, I, I stop in the barbershop just to, you know, sit in a chair for a while, you know, and to, to look around. 
And there's a guy comes in there every every day I'm there, Earl, and he's famous in the neighborhood as the guy who once met Henny Youngman. He is famous as the man who met Henny Youngman. And guys in the barbershop will ask him to repeat the tale over and over. And it goes like this. Here's the way the tale is. You know, me and Marsha... You know how it is, you know, when you're married a long time, you, you kind of get to, you get to the point where you get a little bit bored and stuff like that. Well, me and Marsha got a thing to keep us from being bored. We go out a lot. And so every anniversary, we go to some real high-class place, like we go to the Copa, right? Real high-class place, see? So one night, we're sitting down there at a Copa, and I'm having my usual. You know, I like the 7 and 7 is what I like, and I'm sitting there having my usual, and me and Marsha are having our anniversary, when up there on the stage is Henny Youngman. Well, Henny looks down, he says, ain't I seen you before? Or is that, what is that you got there sticking out of your face? Is that your nose or are you eating a banana? Well, I'll tell you this. Marsha started to laugh because, you know, she's always kidding me about my nose, and I started to laugh. And a couple of minutes later, Henny Youngman comes down and sits right at the table. And he says, uh, how are you? And I said, hello, Mr. Youngman. And Henny says, call me Henny. You know, he's just like a regular guy. He walks around just like everybody else. You wouldn't believe it, you know. And I was really amazed. I could see he was sweating, you know, just like me and everybody else. So I says to him, well, gee, I can't call you Henny, actually, because I don't know you. And at that, Henny says, well, you do know me. You're, you know, everybody knows Henny Youngman. Everybody calls me Henny. They, call, they don't call me Henning Ford, which is my real name. You call me Henny. So I says, well, all right, Henny, what do you have to drink? And he says, well, I'm losing weight right now. I ain't drinking nothing, but thank you very much, folks. It's good to see you here. Well, you know, he actually smiled at Marsha, got up and walked away from the table. And every time now, when I go down to Copa, I wave up at him, and he waves back. You know, it's kind of nice to know somebody who's really in the business. Well, everybody sits around there, you know, in the, in the uh, barber shop, and they marvel at this. And, and the, the barber, by the way, has a little fame in his own right, too. You know what he did? He once ate a delicatessen where two booths down, Rocky Graziano was having a pastrami sandwich. And he watched him put the mustard on it. Well, you know, that, that's, uh, you know that's pretty good. That's close, but not close enough. Because the guy who knew Henny Youngman intimately is unquestionably the star of 10th Street. So I say, friends... You never know all around you. There are people who have risen above the ordinary muck and the mire. Yes, there are people who... Well, I, I got a letter from a guy the other day. And he said that he had a sister who went to school two blocks away from the school that Johnny Carson went to. So he wrote to me and says, Of course, I know all about show business because uh, my sister, you know, is intimately connected with uh, Johnny Carson's early life. And uh, I had to concede that, uh, of course, he does know all about show business. And so everywhere you look, there are unsung, famous men. And if Herman's listening tonight, Herman, you look great, especially on that swing. <laughs> this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Big Lester Smith and the news. News in detail on the hour from the WR newsroom. If rolling stones and other moving things gather no moss, then it must be said tonight the negotiators trying to end the Long Island Railroad strike are green enough for a decade of St. Patrick's Day celebrations. County executives of Nassau and Suffolk talked to both sides today, and then afterward, Ralph Queso, a Nassau County executive, told this reporter, The question is that uh, this is not going to be a quick, easy settlement because there doesn't appear to be any quick, easy solution to the problem. 
Mr. Keso, what would you say was the most important thing you've learned in this couple of hours you spent with Dr. Ronan and with Mr. Delonzo? The most important thing that I've learned is that they appear to be miles apart and that there will be no quick settlement to this strike. Negotiations are scheduled to resume some time tomorrow. Meanwhile, the 12 striking unions have advised their members to apply for unemployment benefits. Pan American Airways and the Teamsters Union announced a tentative contract agreement late today and thus avoided a threatened strike for just after 12 o'clock tomorrow night. Pan Am workers, such as cargo, traffic, and ticket agents, will now vote on whether to accept the new contract. No late report yet on whether a machinist strike against TWA can be averted. Pouring in what he can, New York State's chief labor mediator, Vincent McDonald, has entered the talks to try to settle a strike against the metropolitan area liquor wholesalers. McDonald also invited a federal mediator to join the negotiations between the wholesalers and Teamsters Union Local. The liquor strike is now over one month old. Apollo 17 goes moonward with its crew now wide awake. The astronauts reported back to Mission Control in Houston that the spacecraft is performing in super fashion. Absolutely no problems at all. They should be orbiting the moon sometime Sunday afternoon. In Washington, unidentified United States officials said tonight that plans are being made to send almost 100 State Department Foreign Service officers to South Vietnam. The officers are supposed to go there once a binding peace agreement is reached with North Vietnam. The officials explained that the State Department personnel addition in Saigon is to beef up the United States diplomatic staff in Vietnam while that country undergoes transition from war to peace. From Research Medical Center in Kansas City comes the latest report on the condition of former President Harry Truman. He is still in critical condition, with his temperature changing slightly, but his vital signs are stable. The hospital said that unless there is a drastic change in Mr. Truman's status, they will not issue another report until tomorrow morning. Earlier today, his daughter, Mrs. Margaret Truman Daniels, said after visiting him, I have great faith that he's going to come out of this all right. And we'll have more news after this. Gramercy Park Close of 64 West 23rd Street in New York says, Mister, if the new style of men's clothing turns you on, but the high prices turn you off, you are a candidate for a Gramercy Park suit. Inflation or no inflation, part of being who you are is dressing for today's world. And that's why so many men get new clothes at Gramercy Park. After 78 years of man-